following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Beginning in uh, Luke 19, starting in verse 47, through chapter 20, verse 8. Uh, and as Jesus and as he Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on Jesus' words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple. And preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or or who it is that gave you this authority. And Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they discussed it with with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Um, First contest, first debate that they engage in is over Jesus' authority. They want to know by what right or permission or authority that Jesus is doing all of these things. Um, And as the passage unfolds, we get a picture of two very opposing claims to final and absolute authority. Um, And it's really relevant, uh, as I hope to bring to a conclusion, it's a relevant topic for for us today. Uh, What has final authority over our life? And we live in a world where there are two very differing views of where authority comes from. Uh, one is, is the claims of the world, which really rest on the claims of, of what they would call science. I'm going to use the word science, but I don't mean science as in the, the, the facts of, of how things work. I mean science as the philosophy that says truth can only be known through what is empirical, what can be touched and felt and seen, what can be subjected to scientific um, process. Uh, And the world says that truth is measured by that and that alone. That there is no truth outside of what we can know through science. Um, So so the world tells us that absolute authority rests there. Therefore, matter itself is eternal. Um, It exists independent of a divine force or power. So the world and the universe doesn't need God for it to work. It works purely on the basics of physics, on, on the laws that they observe. It's uncreated, and it is, it is the ultimate origin of all things, right? Eternal uh, Matter is eternal. Human beings were not created by God, right? They evolved. Uh, there is nothing more to our being, therefore, than the existence of chemical interactions, you're just a walking science experiment, and when the fizz is gone, so are you, right? That's what the world says, and that's uh, what they claim is absolute truth. 
Uh, therefore, you don't have a soul. There's nothing. There's no spiritual realm. There's no reality beyond the physical universe, what we can see and touch and experience and, and know through um, hands-on interaction. There is no God, or if there is a God, you can't know Him. There is no eternity. There's no afterlife. And there's no supernatural. Right? Uh, and so the world claims that that's the basis of authority, that they measure truth in light of those doctrines, those principles. Right? But uh, as Christians, we claim a different source of authority, I hope. Right? And that should be Scripture, the Bible, which claims something very different, that the world was created by God, a God who's not only made it but sustains it, that God is the origin, he's eternal, and matter is not eternal. Um, man was created by God. We are not the result of random accidental arrangement of atoms that uh, have no design or purpose. Um, there is, in fact, a very real and even more, uh, more real reality that is spiritual and supernatural, and that the physical universe is not the end of all that there is. There is something beyond the physical realm of time and space. And God inhabits that place. And so there are times and places where the supernatural and the natural intersect, where that other spiritual realm and the physical realm intersect. And one of those is in uh, our own being. We are both physical and a human body, but we are also spiritual. We have the ability to interact with this world, but we also have the ability to interact with this uh, supernatural being called God. And sometimes God intervenes in the world in the ways that we describe as miraculous or supernatural. That God does things that cannot be explained uh, on, the, on the principles of physics and chemistry and biology. Right? God can do beyond that. Uh, we are more than just biology. The universe is more than that. There is something spiritual and eternal. And every human being faces an eternal destiny. Right? So... Two very different views of life, and each turns to its own authority base to support what it believes is true. Um, both claim to be authoritative. Uh, so which is true? And uh, the, the relevant point for us as we see as we go through this is, um, to what extent are we allowing the world to usurp authority over us and over our thinking and over our understanding? I think uh, the reality is that today too many Christians are being uh, challenged by the world and they do not know how to answer. Uh, and they are falling under the, the, the deception and the false source of authority of this world. So we'll talk about that. Uh, uh, and you might think, well, I don't think this, this, this passage teaches that. But let's look at it. We'll get there. All right. Uh, so what happens in the story? Let's back up to the story and look at what, what uh, Luke teaches here, um, there's two groups in this story. And basically, uh, there are, there's two kinds of people in the story. The, there's the prophets and there's the politicians. Right? And then there's the crowd. There's actually three, prophets, politicians, and, crowd, and, the, and the crowd. Again, let me read the first part. It says, And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leading men of the city were seeking to destroy him. But they couldn't do it because the people were hanging on Jesus' words. And so there's the three groups of people. Let's talk about uh, Jesus, who in this setting, and as Luke describes him, is very much fulfilling the role of a prophet. He's teaching in the temple. 
in, in verse 1 it says that he was daily teaching and preaching the gospel. Um, what is meant by that? Uh, well, um, w- Jesus was a very different kind of teacher than the teacher that the Jews were used to. And uh, it's, it's interesting, in this group of Jewish leaders who come to confront Jesus, there's, there's the chief priest, the high priest, there's scribes, and then there's other leading men, elders. Well, the scribes were really the teachers in Jesus' day. Uh, so uh, when we think about Jesus, he was a different kind of teacher than them. The way the scribes would teach is they would recite and argue and debate over commentaries on commentaries on commentaries of the Bible, right? They wouldn't actually go to Scripture because it was too holy. Uh, so they would they, they developed these commentaries that explained Scripture. And then they had commentaries that explained those commentaries and even more commentaries that explained those. And when they taught, teaching was reciting these commentaries, and, and they were bogged down in these huge debates about things. But that's not what it means when it says that Jesus taught. If Jesus had been that kind of a teacher, they wouldn't have had a problem with him. They may have debated with him over his interpretation of some commentator. But that was not the issue. Jesus is teaching here in a prophetic role. Uh, and and when, what we mean by that is that Jesus was not simply reciting what the traditions of men had said. Jesus was coming claiming a new message from God as a prophet. And in in the Old Testament, the prophet was the guy who heard directly a message from God, and he spoke up and he would say, Thus saith the Lord. This is is a direct communication from God himself that I have received. And the prophets did all kinds of crazy things. And they would go off in the desert and they would eat bugs and they would fast. And they would spend long times in prayer seeking God and hearing him. And when God would speak a message, they would capture that message in their heart and their mind and they would go to the people and they would speak this message as direct revelation from God. Uh, Being a prophet was a bit of a dangerous profession (laughs) uh, because this is how it worked. If you claimed a prophetic message, uh, it had to be tested. And it was either a true message that that was truly from God or, or it was discounted and you were considered a false prophet. And the way it works, Scripture said, if you were a false prophet, if you claimed to speak for God and you weren't, the, the penalty was not a reduction in pay, right? You didn't get like a, a, a letter against you. You didn't get like a failing grade. You were stoned. Right? You were taken out and you were killed, right? So a prophet who was not speaking for God who claimed that would be killed, right? Of course, the other side, if you were a prophet who was speaking for God, they killed you anyway, right? Because they didn't like what they heard. And they would reject God's message often. And so either way, if you're a prophet, uh, you better have good life insurance because you're not going to live very long. Uh, And Jesus proves that himself, right? He is a prophet. And he claims that he has heard from God and he's speaking a new message from God. And as such, that that message is authoritative, right? He's saying, God is speaking this to you. And you must listen to it as, as words from God. And uh, Jesus clearly claims that role, uh, and he teaches with that kind of authority. And, and uh, we know that the crowds, even early on in his ministry, they said, we've never heard someone teach with authority like this. What they mean by that is, you know, we, our teachers don't speak as someone who's getting his word directly from God. And Jesus had that as he taught. And, of course, we affirm that. We affirm that his message was true, 
that he was, as John says, the Word of God incarnate. Right? That he was, he was in his very being a message and word from God. And all that he lived out and all that he did and all that he taught was a revelation of who God is. And it was powerful and authoritative and true. But, of course, the uh, religious leaders uh, did not see Jesus in that light. Uh, they, they recognized that he was claiming prophetic authority. But they, uh, they challenged that authority because they refused to accept and receive his message. So who were these guys? Well, it says it's an interesting group, but up to this point in Luke, mostly Jesus has been dealing with some Jewish leaders, but mostly with Pharisees. But this is not the Pharisees. This is a different group. These are chief priests, scribes, and elders. Uh, he is in Jerusalem, and these guys came from the council of the Sanhedrin, which was a body of 70 uh, officials who served as the, the branch of government over Jerusalem and over Israel. Of course, they uh, were operating under, under Roman authority, Roman control, so they were not free to make up rules. But they were, in a sense, the governing body, the rulers. And they really were politicians. Right? These guys were politicians, and their role was m- primarily political. Now, uh, let me just be real up front. Politicians are not inherently evil, right? I'm not saying here that because they were politicians, they were bad people. Because had they done their job well, they would have listened to the words of the prophets. And it was their job as the politicians, as the rulers, to enforce the word of the prophet as it came to Israel. And what they should have been doing is uh, implementing Jesus' message. They should have been been receiving it and implementing it uh, in... uh, receiving him as king and working with him. But, of course, they did not do that. And uh, they did not see their role that way. Uh, Instead, uh, like many politicians in our modern day, they saw their role primarily as making people happy, right? As uh, appeasing the masses. Um, And that's not to say they didn't create rules and enforce policy. They did that. But every good politician knows that you cannot create rules and enforce policy through uh, sheer force of power. You can only do that if you're a dictator. And to be a good dictator, you have to have a really large army behind you. Okay, these guys did not have an army. They were at the, dis- at the mercy of the Roman army. So for their public policy to work, like, like most democratic countries today, politicians have to both listen to public opinion and also help shape and influence public opinion. If you want people to accept your policies, you've got to sell it first, right? We're going to raise taxes. And you're going to like this because, right? Kind of a hard sell, but that's what politicians are about, right? They sell things. Uh, and they are tuned in to public opinion. Uh, it's how they make their living. And, uh, and we see that in every... If you're in a democratic country, you see this lived out every day on the news as politicians try to... Um, bolster their approval rating, right? Because approval rating means I've got public backing. Uh, If you have no approval rating, uh, you have no influence, and pretty soon you'll have no job, right? So that's how politicians work. And so that's what these guys are doing, right? They, They have an agenda to get rid of Jesus, but they've got a huge problem. The crowds that love him, they are hanging on his every word. Um, They are... They're behind Jesus. And so they recognize that if we're going to get rid of Jesus, we've got to shift public opinion. So they, um, 
they launched this campaign to do just that. Now, of course, the role of the crowd in all this is um, uh, the crowd, as we will see, uh, has a different response to Jesus than they do the politicians. Interestingly, the crowd responds to the prophet. Right? The crowd responds to Jesus' teaching. Um, on the other hand, the politicians respond to the crowd. Interesting, isn't it? The crowds respond to Jesus, but the politicians respond to the crowd. And because of that, they must change their opinions about Jesus. So how do they do that? Well, they launch this brilliant plan of they're going to they're trap Jesus. They came up with several good questions that they're going to pose to Jesus. And they're just convinced that they are so smart and so intelligent that they're going to trick Jesus into saying something that's going to give him away and is going to discredit him before the crowds. Either that or it will be so heretical that they'll be able to arrest him and, and, and kill him. So here's their great question. And they've, they've planned this. They've plotted this. They're so excited. They go to the temple. They wait till there's a huge crowd. And Jesus is teaching this huge, massive crowd in the temple. And they say, Jesus, we have a question for you, right? With all the sincerity they can muster. Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or what is it that gave, who is it that gave you this authority? Right? How is it you're doing these? Now, uh, it, it's a trap, right? They're not, they're not honestly interested uh, in, in whatever Jesus would answer. They certainly don't believe that Jesus is coming in the authority of God. It's a trap and a trick, and they don't really want to know the answer. They want just to trip Jesus up, to get him to say something wrong. And we don't know how this would have gone. Um, somehow they are hoping that his answer will discredit him before the crowds. And I don't know what that would look like if, if, if Jesus would come up as being blasphemous or overly arrogant or, or if they had a follow-up question that, that was going to you know, really just nail it. They never get that far, right? Uh, because Jesus uh, turns the tide on them. And I, and I love what Jesus does. He, he's not ruffled. He, he's not panicked, right? And without even thinking about it, uh, like, like if this was me, I, I wouldn't have responded this calmly. I would have got defensive. I would have, I would have been scrambling for an answer. I would have been stumbling over my words. But Jesus in an instant just turns it around on him with this, with this simple question. He says, well, I've got a question for you. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? <clears throat> In essence, Jesus is asking them, by what authority did John baptize? And it's not so much that Jesus is concerned just simply about the baptism, but really about all of John's ministry. Uh, and you could, you could paraphrase it this way. Jesus is asking, what about John? Was he a true prophet or not? Was he just a scribe or was he prophetic? And if he was, if he was prophetic, was he a false prophet or a true prophet? Um, simple question, right? But the, uh, the religious leaders are unraveled by the question. And what was intended to be a trap for Jesus ends up being a trap for the religious leaders. Um, and, and here, it, not only did Jesus trap them, but Jesus also, in a sense, answers their question. Because John had baptized Jesus. John had, had affirmed and confirmed Jesus' role and ministry. 
John had identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Uh, John lived and pointed his life towards Jesus. So if John's ministry was true, authoritative and from God, then Jesus can say, well, John confirmed me. So therefore, I too must be from God. Well, the Jews find themselves in a terrible dilemma. Um, and as they, as they debate, it says in verse 5, they discussed it with one another saying, you know, if we say from heaven, Jesus will say, why did you not believe him? Why did you not receive and accept him as a prophet? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are, not, for they are convinced John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Um, these guys have a problem, and the problem is public opinion. And I love the irony of what Jesus does here. These guys, get the picture. These guys are setting out to sway public opinion, right? They think they've got this great plan where they're going to turn people against Jesus. And what traps them? Public opinion, right? Jesus turns it right around on them. And he says, okay, let's talk about uh, public opinion. What do people think about John and what do you think about John? And they're like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. We know, but we're not going to say because if we say what we really believe, the crowd will not only vote us out of office, they'll stone us to death. Right? Uh, they were that adamant and volatile. And they refused to accept John's ministry because it would require repentance, seeking God, a dramatic change in their life, and recognizing Jesus as Messiah. Right? So they had, they had rejected John, John's ministry, but the crowd had not, and they were convinced he was a prophet. Um, so they find themselves, instead of shifting public opinion, they find themselves seriously on the wrong side of public opinion. And Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins. Round one, chalk one up for Jesus, right? Without breaking a sweat, uh, Jesus unravels them. Uh, and, and I love Jesus' response. He goes, well, if, answer, if not answering is an option, I won't answer either, right? And they can make no accusation against him, right? They've been made to look foolish. Um, so, so what is this story about? Well, at one level, it is about the sovereign control of Jesus. Uh, throughout, the, especially the Passion Week, where the, the leaders want to trap him, they want to kill him, they want to destroy him, and they're making all these plans, Jesus remains absolutely in control, right? absolutely in control. Jesus is never caught off guard that things are going to go amiss and not absolutely according to God's sovereign plan. And not only God's sovereign plan, but we see Jesus himself controlling the actions of men and the events of history. Right? Jesus calls the shots here. And he does it not by overwhelming them with power, right? He doesn't do it by turning the religious leaders into puppets. He does not override human free will. He just flat outsmarts and outwits them. Right? Uh, do we believe God is sovereign, is in control, is powerful? Do we believe God is able to outwit the best of our enemies? Well, Jesus demonstrates it's not that hard, right, for God. 
It's not that hard. It wasn't that hard for Jesus to outsmart and outwit them. Um, man cannot be in control. Not because God is going to uh, turn us into puppets, but because he's just smarter than we are. right? And he's got this great way of getting it done. right? And that's what Jesus does here. He will lay down his life when it, it's his time, when he chooses. Uh, God is sovereign. And so we can trust him to work out his plan in our life. right? Uh, God is smarter than whatever enemy you are facing. And he can outwit them. Right? Can you trust him to do that? Second thing that I want to talk about in this passage is, is where, where is our authority? Where does our authority come from? And uh, how does this picture both the right and wrong understanding of authority? And the question comes down to really, you know, what, what is the basis of authority in our life? You know, and how do we stand up against the claims of science that honestly are, are daily trying to erode the authority that God has given us in Scripture. Uh, what is authority? Well, authority can be seen as permission to do something, right, or the right to do something. And in a sense, that's what the, the, the religious leaders are asking of Jesus here. Who, who gave you permission to come in and clear out the temple? Who gave, who gave you permission to come in here and teach what you're teaching? Uh, who gave you permission to heal and do miracles on the Sabbath? Right? Uh, what right do you have to do that? And there's a, a sense in which uh, authority is very much about our right to do something. But authority is more than that. Uh, authority is also the power to do what you have a right or a claim to. Uh, you can have uh, permission to do something, but not have the ability to do it. And, and the Jews understood this, and people living in the Roman Empire understood this well. Because the Caesars were given right to rule by the Senate, right, by the, the political bodies in Rome. But everybody knew that if the army wasn't behind you as a Caesar, your days were numbered. Right? You had to control the army because they were the power that actually made it possible for you to rule. And more than one Caesar was killed, and another Caesar gained power because they controlled the army. It's kind of like right-of-way in Thailand. What is right-of-way, right? It's, it's who has permission to use the intersection or that space of road, right? And who doesn't have it, right? And uh, if you're new to driving in Thailand, this is an important question, right? Do you have right-of-way to charge into some intersection? Or if you do this, are you going to get run over, right? Well, I don't know if this is legal. It's just my observation. But I think right-of-way works like this. Whoever gets there first has right-of-way. Right. You get there first, you've got right away. Unless, of course, you're bigger. Then bigger always gets right away over smaller. Right? So this is how it works. So if you're, if you're in your car and, and you get somewhere and, and a motorbike's in your way, you kind of have right away. And they know that and they get out of the way. Right? However, if you're in your car and you enter an intersection and there's a big you know, 20-wheel truck coming at you with the two trailers that's the size of a house right? coming at you, right? Trust me, they've got right-of-way. Stay out of their way because they'll just run you over, right? Bigger is right-of-way. Um, that's what we're talking about. Who has the right to do something? Well, it's a matter of right, but it's also a matter of power. Uh, and what's interesting in this story is where the, the, the uh, Jewish leaders get their power from, right? Their, uh, their leaders, and, and this is not uh, a discussion about 
God, God-given authority of leaders. It's, it's a story of the bigger picture of authority that really the ultimate authority where it comes from. For the religious leaders, where does their ultimate power to decide and rule come from? Well, it should have come from God. And it should have been, as I said, dictated through the word of the prophets as they stood firmly on God's declarations for how they would rule their country. But instead, what is the source of power for these guys? What's public opinion, right? As big as their talk is, as threatening as they are, who controls them? Public opinion, right? The thoughts and opinions of the crowd. Uh, They feared the crowd. These guys could kill us, right? Um, They did not have the power to do what they wanted to do because they recognized that that power resided with the sway of public opinion. And because they were more concerned about what people thought, because they desperately needed the approval and affirmation and even praise of men, they found that their authority was quite uh, quite weak and faulty and limited. Uh, and, and so they as leaders were ineffective and powerless because they were at the mercy of the tide of, of human thinking. Um, Jesus shows something very different, right? And Jesus practices something very different. So in our modern context, um, where could our authority come from? Well, we have the same really two options, the option of the prophet and the option of the politician. The option of the prophet says that our authority comes from the one who's the ultimate authority of all things, God, who has revealed his purpose and his truth clearly through the prophet's It's been written down and recorded in Scripture. And that is the ultimate source and word on truth. Scripture, for us as believers, is one option for the ultimate source and authority of truth. Uh, Or, like the Jewish leaders, we can turn to public opinion to be the source and ultimate authority of truth. And unfortunately, I think too often as Christians... We do not stand firmly enough on the authority of Scripture, and we are too easily influenced by public opinion. We worry too much what society thinks and how society judges and evaluates Scripture. So how does this look? What does this look like? Well, it looks like this. And you can take the, the teaching but, and fill in the blank. You know, the Bible teaches that blank is wrong. The Bible teaches that this is right. The Bible teaches that blank is how we ought to live our life, right? Now, the way this works, um, uh, if, it's, if it's an issue that the, the society doesn't care about, you're free to believe that. So this is how it works. The Bible teaches that God is love. And the world says, we want to believe in God, but if you want to believe in God and he's loving, you go for it. You you just hold on to that belief. and. And good for you, right? And they'll even applaud you. Good for you, right? Um, If you want to believe in eternity, if you want some kind of hope that when you die you're going to some la-la land, well, good for you, right? We have no problem with that. But where do we get issues? Well, we get issues when what we believe uh, defies modern culture and values, right? So, uh, and, and those things against which... Popular opinion is very strong. And we've got a lot of those going on right now, right? Uh, one of the chief ones is the whole same-sex marriage thing. Uh, and, and the world is saying, no, you cannot believe that, right? 
And the parts of Scripture that say that that's sin and wrong uh, must be wrong, right? It cannot be authoritative because science and culture and sociology speaks against that. And so uh, your, your, your book is, is flawed. It's, it's not trustworthy, right? In all kinds of areas of, of, of moral absolutes right now, whether it's sex outside of marriage or same-sex uh, relationships or whatever, right? Society says, no, you are fools, and it cannot be true, right? And they defy our right to make those claims. Um, take other issues, the role of men and women in the home and in the church, right? Society says, well, that's old-fashioned, that's archaic, that was from a different culture a long time ago. Scripture can't mean those things. Scripture can't be saying those things. Uh, of course, in things like creation and scientific problems, um, you know, science says the world and the earth and the universe must be billions of years old. You are fools, and Scripture cannot be true if it contradicts what we, uh, what we claim is absolute scientific evidence. How do we respond to that? Well, sadly, for too many Christians, they've taken this approach. They've said, well, you know, science must be right. Those facts must be true. Therefore, I've got to cut out of Scripture and diminish as authoritative those portions of Scripture that somehow contradict popular opinion. Uh, And so more and more, the church is saying, yeah, we believe the Bible is God's word in as far as it fits within what culture and science say are okay. Okay. And in doing that, we are doing exactly what the Jewish religious leaders did. We are ascribing our authority and our power to public opinion. Okay? And we become weak and ineffective in our witness for Christ. Right? And we make God himself weak and powerless. Um, we have got to fight the battle for Scripture. Right? And I understand it's complicated. Right? And I get it. And I understand in my own life, it's, it's hard to wrestle with some of these things. And science says, you know, the earth has to be billions of years old. And I read Genesis and um, I can't always sort it out. Right? And, and by the way, I think you can hold a, a literal view of Scripture and, and not necessarily believe the earth is only 6,000 years old. You can throw rocks at me, send me emails later. later, later. Um, uh, but, but, the, but the deeper issue is this. What do we claim as final authority, right? the final word? Well, for me, there are things in Scripture I cannot reconcile with science. There, granted, there are things that in Scripture absolutely make no sense to me. And one side of me wants to say, Scripture must be wrong. right? Science must be right. I'm telling you, you cannot go down that path. And here's why. Ultimately, it's idolatry. Right? Either God is supreme, either God is the ultimate judge and source of all truth and authority, uh, and we acknowledge him as that, and we believe that his revealed spoken word, his prophetic revelation, judges all else. Or we say, well, Scripture is mostly true, or it contains truth, right? There's truth in there somewhere. But it's ultimately man and science who gets to decide what parts of Scripture are true and which parts are not. 
And if you take that road and you say, well, you know, science has discredited this. Uh, public opinion has discredited this. You've made those people ultimate authority over God and his word. Right? Do, you get, do you get the significance of that? Right? We've made public opinion an idol that's taken the place of God as sovereign Lord over all things. God's word must be true, absolutely, completely, inerrant without flaw in all of its content. In its, I'll throw in, in its original, its, its original form. Okay, not. I, I get that there are textual problems with our current version, right? In its original prophetic word from God to the prophet, as it was recorded, we must hold on to that as final, authoritative, and true. So how do I do that if I, if I think science has actually got a pretty good point? Well, ultimately, it comes down to a matter of faith, right? It comes down to accepting that there's a lot in Scripture I may not be able to reconcile and deal with, but I am going to believe by faith that God knew what he was talking about. And that the problem is not in God's revelation, it's in my understanding, which is often flawed and weak and inadequate. Right? But I will not allow man to judge Scripture. I will not allow myself to stand as judge over Scripture. It must be the final word of authority. And by the way, I think Jesus... Uh, if he were to answer the, the Jewish leaders, if they had honestly wanted to know by what authority, how would he have answered them? Would he have said, well, I'm God incarnate. Can't you see that? I don't think so. I think he would have gone to Scripture and he would have demonstrated through the authority of Scripture who he was. And I know that because in John uh, 21, I think it is, that's exactly what Jesus does. right? On the, on the road to Emmaus, as the guys are going... You know, you missed this whole thing about Jesus. And Jesus, the resurrected Lord, was walking with him. He says, okay, let me show you from Scripture what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he had to do. He validated his life on the authority of Scripture. And the force against Christianity right now and within the church of eroding the authority of Scripture is huge. If you have not worked this out, work it out, right? Work it out. Uh, If you have worked it out, talk to your kids about this. Because I guarantee, uh, as much as you may be solid on it, your kids are not. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. No matter where they go to school, I'm telling you, they're hearing voices from Christians and others that are diminishing the power and authority of Scripture as inspired, infallible Word of God. And they they are granting the authority and power of their life to the opinions of men. And it will, uh, it will destroy their faith. Right? It puts them at risk of losing eternity. Uh, we must guard and we must fight for and affirm in our own life by faith the truth of God's word. Right? It is, as, as Paul wrote in Timothy, it, all scripture is given by inspiration. It's God-breathed. It's his word. Every word. Every word spoken by God. And it's, it's the ultimate test for truth. Right? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.